You know in the book of Genesis, when uh, Jacob is having his nighttime wrestling with God, and at the end of it, he says, I'm going to call you Israel, uh, because that means uh, one who wrestles. Well, I, I like to think of what we do is we're also... We're also Jacobs, we're also uh, wrestlers, we're also wrestlers, we're also wrestlers, we're also wrestling with God like Jacob. And this is one of those wrestling weeks. I'll confess that there are times when I read the upcoming text to prepare for Sunday, for today, that I'm tempted to think, man, this is a wrestle, this is a wrestling match. And I imagine many people think when they hear passages like this, that sometimes, what is this? passage about uh, eating Jesus in some really literal chompy chomp sense. Uh, what has that got to do with us, that the Bible has precious little to do with our lives that we're living right now in 2021? It feels like a stretch sometimes when you read things like this to find a connection between the ancient and the modern. And this week was one of those weeks. I mean, here we are, stuck in the middle of this argument between Jesus and the crowd, the crowd he had fed and then been going back and forth with, and this crowd who was following him, this argument they're having about bread from heaven. Was it the same bread that Moses used, the manna, so and forth? And Jesus, in this nearly unintelligible and sometimes rather gross assertion about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And Jesus is being literal here. That's what we sometimes uh, sort of forget. Jesus is being very literal here. This is something he's wanting to shock them with. Biblical scholars, I realize, can show that behind these verses that John writes is a controversy raging in the early church about the nature and the import of the Lord's Supper, a controversy which John the Evangelist is attempting to settle with his record of Jesus' discourse about giving his own flesh and blood, his body, so that the world might live. But even as I plotted through the work of these scholars, ranging from St. Augustine to John Wesley to Martin Luther, some of my own professors and colleagues, and they're well up with inside me, this, this mighty complaint at times as I was reading this. I wanted to say, so what? I wanted to scream with each new turn in the scholarly debate and the biblical twist, so what? What is this talk of flesh and blood and heavenly bread and even with the Lord's Supper, really have to do with the ins and outs and ups and downs of everyday living. What does it have to do with the things that really matter, the loves, the fears, the hates, and the loves and the hopes, our livings and our dimes? What does it have to do with us here and now, 2,000 years later, the people who are struggling to make ends meet? See, when I come to a biblical text, I... I don't show up looking for a fight, for academic and theological controversies. They're interesting, but that's not why I'm here. Ultimately, I come to the Bible to find counsel and comfort in dealing with life. And even more, I think I come to this text for meaning, 
Not meaning in the sense of answering all my questions, but meaning which makes life worth living. And so like the crowd in today's lesson, I, I grew frustrated with Jesus' abstract words about eating and drinking his body and blood when what we really needed to hear was something I thought at first glance, something concrete, solid, and meaningful. How can this man give us his flesh, they asked. And rightly so. Or in other words, stop talking nonsense, Jesus. Give us something we can take to the bank. Jesus, we need something a little more than these empty, abstract, metaphorical words or even literal words you're making. And to this angry demand, Jesus responds by insisting on the point he's made over and over again. He says, I'm telling you the truth. Both to the crowd gathered around him in Capernaum and to us here at New Sharon. I'm telling you the truth. If you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in yourselves. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. For my flesh is the real food and my blood is the real drink. And then suddenly, upon hearing these words, we realize that the crowd, both then and now, us, we realize that he's serious. He's not being metaphorical. He's not speaking abstractly, as I said. He really means it. This one, Jesus, would give us his flesh to eat and his blood to drink. And upon hearing it, the crowd there in Capernaum sh shrinks back. That's what John tells us. Because what Jesus is speaking about has always been regarded as an abomination by the law and prophets. And upon hearing it, we shrink back because it just doesn't fit with our reason. It doesn't fit our sensibilities. And if we're honest, it just seems a little gross. It sounds a little closer to cannibalism than Christianity. I mean, just think about it for a moment. When was the last time we really paid close attention to the words of Jesus as we remember the Lord's Supper? A good friend, a pastor I know, described what happened in his church when one of his parishioners did just this. The communion table was draped, as always, in starch linen, as some churches do, and was set with silver chalices and plates and a crystal flag. And the congregation was silent and even somber as the pastor began to read the words of institution in a solemn tone meant to add dignity to the proceedings. And he said, on this occasion, when I repeated Jesus' familiar words, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood shed for you, a little girl in the congregation said in a voice, very loudly, ew, yuck. <laughs> the congregation just looked horrified. He continues as if someone had splattered blood all over the altar, which in effect is what the little girl had done with her exclamation. So for three weeks now, we've looked at this sixth chapter of the gospel according to John and have connected it to our faith and particularly to the sacraments in a way that creates and nourishes our faith. But now here, we finally get to the heart of it all. 
In these verses, we begin to recognize just what is at stake for Jesus and us and just how much we are worth to him. What's at stake for Jesus and how much we are worth to him. In these verses, he offers to us his life, his very own flesh and blood, the flesh which will be stretched out upon the cross for our sake and the blood which will flow freely from his hands, feet, and side for our sake. And for the past few weeks, we read and we study and we struggle to understand what Jesus means by saying bread of life, bread of life, food from heaven. And now in this week, he makes himself far too plain. We thought everything was so abstract. What does he mean? Is this allegory? Is this metaphor? And finally, he says, okay, I'll tell you straight out. This is what it means. Jesus gets all too gritty. He gets a little base in his imagery in order to confront us with the claim and promise of a carnal God. That is a God who becomes one. Incarnate. Who takes on flesh who becomes just like us so that we may one day be with God. For Jesus, the word made flesh, and in the sacraments, the word given physical, visible form, once again, we meet God who will be satisfied with nothing less than all of us. That's the key. God will be satisfied with nothing less than all of us. And this is why Jesus speaks of giving us the totality of his flesh and blood. You see, for flesh and blood is a Hebrew idiom, which refers to the whole person. I'm going to give you my flesh and blood. And that's a Hebrew phrase that, that, that they would have used. It means and refers to the whole person, heart, mind, spirit, feeling, hopes, dreams, fears, concerns, everything. I, I, I'm giving you everything. In Jesus, you see, the whole of God meets us to love, redeem, sustain the whole of who we are, good, bad, and ugly. God comes for the whole you. In one sense, this sums up John's testimony to Christ. For throughout the fourth gospel, we've encountered some of the most familiar images describing the relationship of Jesus and those who believe in him. Jesus is the shepherd, and we are the sheep. He's the vine. We are the branches. He abides, and we abide in him. In this passage, however, language is pressed to the limits to express this indissoluble union and the inextricable participation of one life in another. For those who receive Jesus, the whole Jesus, his life clings to your bones and courses through your veins. He can no more be taken from your life than last Tuesday's breakfast can be taken from your body. This is the promise which God makes to us in the sacraments to be one with us forever and to stick with us even no matter what it takes. So, every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we will do here in a moment, 
God comes to us once again to offer us a promise made so concrete and so solid that we can touch, feel, taste, and eat it. We're here again in these common physical elements of touch, taste, smell, just our senses. We have God's promise that God not only cares about our birth, our deaths, our marriages, our jobs, our successes, our failures, our COVIDs, our whatever, but that God has joined with our own self to them, to us, through Christ, through the Word made flesh and given for us. So to answer my question in the bulletin where we started, what's it got to do with us? It's got everything to do with us. So I invite you to come. Come and eat and drink this promise. Come to meet God who meets us exactly where we are. Come to receive the real food of Christ's own body, the real drink of Christ's own blood that we might have support in living this so in living this so very real and difficult world. Come finally to meet the God who offers us not just meaning, but life itself. I don't mean. I, I, I want I want good ideas. I want life itself. Life in Christ, both now and forever. Amen. Okay.